Hello and welcome to Underscore, the podcast from ASIL Allen featuring leading experts in economics and public policy. I'm your host and CEO of ASIL Allen, Paul Hislop. We're joined here today by my colleague, Amy Merton. Amy is Executive Director of Victoria for ASIL Allen. Amy recently wrote an insight piece on engaging youth, youth voice in policymaking. Amy, it's great to have you here. How are you? Great, Paul. It's a pleasure to be here and thank you for giving me the time to, to discuss this important topic today. You know, look, I, I'm, I'm very interested in the topic, um, probably partly because I'm so remote from youth today at, at, in my old age. I found your article uh, really interesting and really insightful. The first thing that I, I did find, though, I, I did sort of come away with a bit of a sense of foreboding about the future, especially seen through the eyes of, of young people today. What's, what do you, what's happened to our young people that they've seems to have lost so much resilience over the last 20 or 30 years? I think that's a really good question, Paul, and probably one place that I should start is to recognise that young people remain incredibly resilient under increasingly complex circumstances. Uh, we should not neglect to, to pay attention to the strengths that they have and that they contribute to our communities. And the fact that they continue to demonstrate resilience in such difficult circumstances should really be celebrated. But there have been quite significant changes in social, cultural and economic conditions um, over that 20 to 30 year period that have had significant impacts on how we think about resilience and what that means for the future for these young people. When we talk about resilience, some of the key factors that support resilience, particularly for contemporary young people, one is, is around cultural identity. So that sense of self in, in who you are, the level of confidence you have in your own identity and that comfort that brings with your identity in your interactions in community. The second is around the connections between different communities. So there we might be talking around cultural groups, language groups, but also importantly, given our conversation today, Paul, generational divides and generational <laughs> groups as well. And we refer to that as bridging capital. So how well connected people are across those different dimensions in society. There's also the important role of trust and confidence between communities and government, which is technically called linking capital. So the extent to which we have faith that the decision makers and the policy makers are going to make calls and, and put us in directions that are right and appropriate for our value systems. And then there's the attitudes that underpin um, all of the above in terms of social and emotional skills, norms and approaches that really help to come together to form resilient individuals. What we've seen, though, as society has changed is that some of the protective factors that contribute to those elements have been reduced. So we live increasingly isolated lives. A lot of the connections we have to family and community have been broken down as patterns of social interaction have changed. Our employment arrangements have shifted and many young people now are working in casual gig economy type roles with less secure employment futures moving forward and less clarity around what those pathways and progression points look like. And there's also the broader sense within community that the hope for the future is really shifting. So some of the research on young people has showed that up to 50% of young adults feel that they don't have any hope for the future as a result of the perceptions of what their social and economic potential looks like as we move forward. As those protective factors have eroded, there have been direct and immediate impacts on young people. So their experiences of social isolation have increased. The reported incidents of racial discrimination have also gone up. And alongside that, there's been increased challenges through COVID in particular around misinformation and activities that have broken down those connections between young people. So what we really see there is a direct relationship between the changes in society and those structures that we interact with 
the factors that help people to be resilient and the challenges that we see when we put those two things together that mean it's increasingly difficult for young people to, to maintain that resilience and to have those strengths that are required to effectively interact socially and as part of the community as a whole. When I look at, um, I'm, I'm being being very generalised here, but when I see not just young people, but a lot of young people, when I see them interacting in public I often see them on devices interacting, even though they're sitting with each other, still interacting through devices. I get in lifts, people have their head down on their devices. You get on public transport today, people are on their devices, they're not talking to each other. Is there something about the way that we've brought people up and, and basically giving, giving them carte blanche access to technology that's removed this, this ability to socially interact? Is, or is, is the solution in using the technology better? That's a really interesting observation, Paul, and I think one that all of us have uh, experienced when we're on the train or at the pub even these days. Mm-hmm. Something that I think is important for us to note there is that we bring our own perspectives and biases when we look at new technology. Mm-hmm. I remember the first iPhone I had. I thought it was a pointless device that would contribute nothing to my life, uh, and now I can't live without my phone, <laughs> even though I hate myself a little bit for saying that. So it's important to know that when we look at the, these forms of technology and the ways of interacting we're bringing our own upbringing to that and our own experiences of youth and what that looked like Mm. and making some assumptions about the way in which people are interacting and what that means so we'll commonly hear people of my age and older talking about technology as completely undermining connection and sense of community what that neglects to observe is that the technology actually gives us new ways of connecting so young people these days in in many ways are connecting with individuals locally and globally that they wouldn't have otherwise experienced. They're more able to access their friends and family. So I'm sure many of us learned also in the pandemic, the value of a video call while you're in Mm -hmm. lockdown. So there are these new mechanisms that technology facilitates that actually allow us to be better connected, to maintain relationships in different ways, and to really strengthen those factors that I was talking about earlier. There are two challenges that sit alongside that though. One is that we need to still be developing the social and emotional skills in young people for them to engage with technology safely and respectfully. And some of the challenges that we see is that without the foundational skills around how to interact and how to have conversations, and particularly how to sit with differences of views, technology is creating a breakdown in that communication. And individuals are increasingly perhaps not using it in a positive way that they they could connect with. And we see that a lot in terms of the cyberbullying reports and the incidences mm-hmm. there and the increasing youth of those that are involved in such activities. The other challenge that sits alongside it is the risk around echo chambers and what that might mean. Many of us will have seen posts we don't like on Instagram or Facebook and unfollowed or blocked people when they disagree with our perspectives. There's an increasing array of, of techniques and tools that we have available to us to close off our minds to the perspective of others, to not sit with it and understand what those views might mean to the individual and to help see where there's still a shared overlap in in our sense of values. There's also people that take advantage of that technology by using it to promote misinformation or the algorithms that in fact can send you down those rabbit holes. And we saw some really clear examples in recent years of that in relation to conspiracy theories and vaccinations in particular, and the challenges that brought particularly for policymakers in trying to unpick that. And so I think that really there's a, a tension there between technology, which used in its best sense can bring us together in new ways and better ways than we've ever had access to before, 
But if we stop developing the skills that are required to use those appropriately, to moderate them as, as governance bodies, as well as uh, equipping the population to be able to interact with them, then it becomes um, more difficult for, for us to really get as much out of it as we could. Yeah, I, I, I see that. And I there's no way of going back either. You, you can't sort of suddenly say we're not going to have technology anymore. So we've got to, got to learn to work with it. And, and I'm I'm a great user of technology myself. I love it. Although I, I must admit, I, I don't generally follow rabbit holes and I don't go chasing down things. And when I see people in echo chambers, I tend to turn them off because, you know, you, you just can see how silly some of the commentary is and how unhelpful it is. But I think an example you used, which was really good, the, the ability to do video conferencing during lockdowns, at the same time, it also highlighted what it lacked in terms of the ability to go and actually meet face-to-face people, shake hands, give people a kiss on the cheek, cuddle people, see people's facial interactions, a bit more the messiness of life, which which life is all about, which technology doesn't give us. Getting a balance there is, I think, is important. And while it's not the primary issue that we're here to talk about, I mean, it is it is a, a very significant issue, I think, ultimately engaging with with, with young people. I definitely understand that and agree with that, Paul. I've got um, young family members who uh, it's quite hard to engage them at social interactions because they're on their phones the whole time and that's how they would prefer to be. I think it's a shared responsibility and and that's really what comes through in in my perspective when we think about engaging youth in in policy more broadly is that we have to meet in the middle. So there's a benefit in in coming together, as you say, face-to-face in developing the skills to manage those interpersonal interactions but we're not going to get everyone through that avenue all the time and so we have to also work out ways to be more flexible and responsive to the changing patterns of interaction and make sure that we're really trying to get the best out of both worlds there. In, in your article you you talked about that one of the things that we're seeing is through the disengagement of youth is, is a disengagement from education and I think uh, something like a 50% increase in disengagement over a relatively short period. That's a very troubling uh, statistic. I've always seen education as as the great enabler and the great leveliser. If people are pulling out of education, that's a, that's a very very serious issue. Yeah, I think that education is really a, a key part of this, and important for us to recognise that, as well as you say, being a leveler, a leveler, and providing that mobility. Education has a precursor role in connection and engagement, even before we get to mm. that stage. So schools provide a really unique setting for young people to engage um, at such a formative stage of their lives. They provide really explicit education around knowledge and skills and the Mm. attributes that we need to be able to interact in a contemporary society. But they also help to strengthen our social connections and to build that bridging capital that I spoke about earlier across communities. One of the challenges that that sits I think in the education space and I should note that um, I recognize that the education sector is doing as well as it can be in a relatively underfunded resource environment and an increasingly complex space in terms of young people's needs but to really engage young people and, and help to build that connection there's a need for the education system to be inclusive and to support student well-being. Student wellbeing is one of the essential precursors to engagement in education and ultimately attainment that helps to lead to that mobility that you're talking about. In building inclusive education systems, though, there's a multifaceted consideration that we need to look at. Uh, One is around teacher capability and, and school staff capability more broadly. 
So how well they're able to build safe spaces for young people, how well they can demonstrate cultural competence in working with really diverse populations, and how well they can develop school cultures that support inclusion and respect. So that brings into play both the formal education of, of teachers and school leaders, but also the knowledge and attitudes that they demonstrate when they're role modeling respectful behaviours within their school communities to build that inclusive environment. The other aspect of education that can be quite challenging, which comes up a lot in the policy space, is this tension between focusing on literacy and numeracy and the broader set of social and emotional skills that are so important for young people and their resilience. Uh, we've done a lot of research with young people over the years and they consistently recognise the value of literacy and numeracy. They understand how important it is to their further education um, and employment prospects in the future. But what they're looking for is an education system that recognises what it's like to be a young person now and provides them with the skills that they need to be able to transition from those teenage years in particular through to their early 20s when they're out on the world on their own for the first time. Some of the specific things that have come through our research have been, as I've mentioned, building their social and emotional skills. So how do they communicate with each other respectfully? How do you deal with difference? And how do you safely interact in areas where you may have challenging conversations or, or areas? They're also looking for increasing curriculum that helps to cover their knowledge of cross-cultural understanding and diversity and recognising that community is becoming increasingly diverse and young people want to know more to make sure that they're demonstrating their own values, they're making informed decisions and they're interacting in respectful and appropriate ways. So when we think about education in, in that sense, what we can see is that it's about the system in its broadest perspective from the policy priorities that government sets when they look at curriculum and, and inv investment in particular initiatives through to the capacity and capability of the education workforce to do both that formal explicit teaching while also supporting social and emotional mm. well-being and then the inclusiveness of those environments so that young people really build that sense of belonging in the first instance that enables to maximize their educational outcomes throughout their educational journey. Yeah I mean just listening to what you're saying there it sort of took me back I guess a long way back to my own days as a teenager and I mean, they, they weren't they weren't easy. I mean, it's never it's never been easy being a teenager. And there were, I think there were people, certainly a lot of people, that uh, were struggling back when I was a teenager with many of the issues that you're talking about today. Do you think maybe it's a bit of a case that maybe young people today, and maybe this is a positive thing, are speaking up more than we were thirty or forty years ago? I think that's a really important point for us to unpack a little bit there, Paul, because it does highlight some of the challenges in looking at the data in this space. And there's been, you know, equivalents drawn when we talk about family violence reporting, child sexual abuse, and a lot of the other challenges that we're facing in, in contemporary policy. On one hand, we have young people who are having an increasing voice in being able to articulate their needs and what those are, which can lead to an increase in the reporting in particular areas. We also have an increasing understanding of the, the nuance and the importance of mental health for young people, which means that there's a service system that's more responsive, while it's still not ideal, it's better than it was, in trying to meet the needs of young people and adolescents in relation to their mental health, which brings an increasing focus and provides people the language to talk about what they're experiencing as well. So when we look at that change from a system level in the capacity and capability 
alongside the changing norms around being able to talk about mental health and resilience, it can lead to an increase in what the data is telling us there in terms of those increasing presentations. That's not a bad thing, though. I think what it does is give us a better sense about where the population is at, what the community needs are, and what we need to be thinking about from a policy perspective to make sure that we're hearing those people when they say they need help and able to provide services and supports that will help to improve outcomes for them moving forward. If I look back again, I think a lot of people um, in, in my era probably just turned to drugs and alcohol, you know, when they faced uh, many of these issues, uh, essentially zone out or, or, or cope, with, um, cope with those issues. It's interesting that you highlight that, Paul, though, because many communities and particularly communities experiencing disadvantage still have significant issues with mm. alcohol and other drugs. Uh, so course. it's not like that problem or that strategy has gone away. There's some definite gaps in the service system in meeting those needs at the moment, but it's perhaps that there's a, a broader spread across the, the nature of the issues that young people are experiencing, the acuteness of those issues and the way in which they're able to access help as well. There seems to be, again, and maybe it's because um, younger people are more prepared to speak out and recognising there's always been generational divides. I mean, if you go back to the 50s, you know, the rock and roll generation and then the, the flower power of the 60s and the start of technology through Generation X in the 70s. Do, do you think, though, is there something that older generations are doing today to, to exacerbate problems for young people? Or is there more than one thing? <laughs> Uh, definitely uh, more than one thing, but I'll be kind to the older generations. And I should probably also disclose that I myself no longer fit the definition of a young person. So I'm halfway between those generations that you've identified. When I was growing up, it was still a similar experience to, to what you've talked about previously with me, Paul, and that sense that the perspective of the adults is the most important thing. They're the ones that have the wealth of experience, the knowledge and the expertise to be able to guide us on our way to tell us what's best and to fix problems for us when we can't quite fix them ourselves. I think with the level of change that is being experienced in society now and the rate of that change, adults aren't always keeping pace with what the world looks like for young people. So that disconnect between your experience and my experience and that of an 18-year-old is greater and greater over time. As a consequence of that, the perspective of adults doesn't always reflect the uh, contemporary environment, the contemporary needs or the complexities that young people are experiencing. And there's a, a bit of a challenge, not to shame the older generations, because again, I put myself in that category, is the ability to recognise that disconnect. We're all familiar with the OK Boomer jokes of young people essentially calling us out when we don't understand why their experiences are different. And I think that's a really clear way for us to access where those gaps are and where the disconnects are because detriment that can come through this is that adults and older people don't necessarily value the perspective of young people. They underestimate how well thought out those views are and they can be quite dismissive of those perspectives in, in recognising that this current generation is earlier in their lives. They don't have that experience. And so what we really see is that there's a need uh, for us to be able to come together to respect the experiences of each other and to really sit down and take the time to unpack where they're different, why they're different, and listen to how that might manifest in different perspectives rather than falling back into those social norms. I think that age equals wisdom and that that's the only voice that we should listen to when we're thinking about policy. Yeah, I, I mean, the inexperienced one I think is a, a really interesting uh, issue. And I, I think probably 
to some extent, older people also think, well, you know, younger people haven't yet got as much skin in the game. So, you know, why should they have as as much say? So, I mean, from your perspective, why should we be listening more to young people when maybe they haven't got as much skin in the game or have they got as much skin in the game? Well, that was going to be my first point. I think there's there's two points I'd like to cover in response to that. The first is that young people, if anything, may have more skin in the game mm. if you count it in terms of years left of life experience and mm. wanting to make sure that their future is as secure and fruitful as it can be compared to those that are at the other end of the life cycle mm. and not necessarily thinking as far forward in their considerations. I think the second element that I wanted to really draw out is that young people are the experts in their own lives. And that's really the fundamental premise around why they need to be engaged in, in policymaking, why we need to hear their voices and why we should be respecting them. If we want our programs and our government investment to be efficient and effective and appropriate in all the ways that we talk about, it needs to be aligned to the needs of the individual. And the best way to understand that is to ask them what it is that they're looking for, what their experiences are, and how they can best have those needs met. There is a, a challenge that comes through that, and I, I take your point around the level of experience. We can't expect a, a high school student to come and directly interface in a Commonwealth public policy forum because it's not their world. Uh, they don't know the norms or the approaches that are effective in advocating for their voice or uh, contributing to those discussions. And so it is still important that we focus on building the capacity of young people to participate in those spaces through leadership training, programs that support the development of civic engagement and civic participation skills and ways of increasing that exposure to those institutions to make sure that young people know how they work, know how to advocate for themselves and feel able to be heard within those processes. I mean, I've often thought you know, that one of the big risks for society is if if a large enough element of society decides it no longer has any connection, you know, with society. And, I mean, that's that's the point at which, you know, revolutions occur almost, you know. It's, on the other hand, and, again, this is probably an older perspective. Well, it is an older perspective. The idea of what someone at 15 or 18 thinks they need and want in life, you and I know that's probably going to be different at 40. So how do we balance, you know, trying to meet the needs of people at those ages to meet what they think they need when, in fact, we, we, we know that in time they're probably going to want something different and maybe everything they think they do need at 15 or 18 is actually maybe not the best thing for them. I definitely understand the perspective that things change. I mean, when I was 15, I thought I was going to be a fashion designer when I grew up, and that's obviously not where I've ended up, as you can tell by my sense of style. Could be your uh, next career, Amy. <laughs> <laughs> I highly doubt that it would require me to move out of the exclusively black and white clothing. That's I Melbourne. Think, <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the probably the key concepts to, to focus on here is the value of co-design. Um, mm. So I'm not suggesting that we should let young people take over all of our government institutions and define mm. policy for all aspects of society. It's about youth-led programs and youth-led initiatives for young people. Mm. So finding those spaces where there are needs, helping them to have a space and a, a platform to engage and really finding those opportunities to bring together young people and um, adults to leverage the respective contribution and expertise of those perspectives to come together, develop 
an approach that reflects both of those, but doesn't necessarily predetermine or dictate that young people are never going to be able to change their mind because we want that innovation, we want that creativity, and we want to make sure that we're operating in a system that's responsive to those changes because really their preferences will change, but society as a whole will as well. There might be a little bit of schadenfreude in some way from um, some of the older generations. I, I remember back uh, during the, the, the rise of the millennial generation and uh, when uh, really, uh, at, at, for a time at least, uh, the millennials seemed to be eschewing the whole traditional way of thinking and working and settling down and having families. And then, of course, we had the, the Great Recession following the, the, the global financial crisis and things seemed to change a little bit. And I, my sense is that for some older people, they were almost saying, you know, I've told you so, you know. I, I think I think as we talked about before, it's there's no putting the genie back in the bottle in terms of the way things have changed. Just in the last three or four years, we've experienced a massive change in our own organisation, the way people interact with us, uh, the way they come to work or work from home or work from other places. We've talked a bit about, or quite a bit about disengagement. And in your article, you you raise the issue that, it's very difficult nowadays to, to organise a town hall meeting and we need to connect with people through, young people in particular, through the means that they're, they're using. But how, how does that play out in the context that we're also trying to engage people? Is, isn't actually connecting people privately through technology creating more disengagement? You've highlighted a really key tension there, Paul, which is, you know, technology is not automatically disengagement. It's just a different form of engagement. There's a lot of platforms out there and innovations in the technological sphere that we could be better leveraging when we talk about bringing people together. And that can be from things like a survey platform that's interactive and live and provides feedback through to online forums where everyone is able to interact and participate in different ways. So I think it shifts a responsibility onto to us and our generations of thinking about why we're engaging, who we're engaging with and where to best identify which approach is going to garner that interest, get people committed and get them active. We know that running town hall meetings is not particularly effective in the current day and age. You get uh, a similar sort of participant that isn't representative of the community more broadly. And that highlights the need for us when we're thinking about equitable and inclusive policy to find different avenues and different techniques to meet people where they are. It is important, as I mentioned earlier, for us to still have those skills that allow us to actively engage in debate, to sit with each other when we have different perspectives and to work through them collectively. That's still much easier to do face-to-face -face than it is over mm. something online or something where you don't have those facial cues to react with. And so we often have to think about really making sure that we're creating safe spaces, that the platform that we're using allows for the kind of discussion that we're seeking and that we're thinking, I guess, Broadly speaking, the message is to be more active when we think about active engagement and to not default to some of the approaches that we might have used 10, 20 years ago mm. when we know that the community is at a different point now. You, you mentioned the echo chamber effect earlier on online. If people are learning their, their primary communication skills in those sorts of environments, there's a risk that they then bring those skills or lack of skills into the physical environment as well, which, which can make those those physical meetings then less beneficial. Which is what we've actually seen at a, a more granular level, I think, in schools and young people returning back to face-to-face -face learning after time in, in lockdown and remote engagement, where 
uh, a lot of the anecdotal evidence and the qualitative feedback from our research indicates that students have really struggled to build those communication skills where they haven't been in those environments. And it's taking a lot of active effort from school staff and school leaders to focus on ensuring that young people are equipped to be able to interact positively and, and in a way that we'd like to see them in those spaces. I've had uh, anecdotal evidence from people I know with businesses that say they're having the same problem with you know young professionals who've been with accountants and lawyers and and so on that have been at home and are really struggling to to come back into the workforce and and and, and communicate actively with people. Well, what would be the two or three things if you were given a limited amount of money, not not an unlimited <laughs> amount of money, because that's not the way government works. <laughs> If you were given a, a you know, reasonable size budget, what, what do you think would be the two or three initiatives that you would pursue to improve the the role of young people in policy making within our within our country and in our government? Paul, I tend to be a bit of a systems thinker, so one of the first things I'd do would probably be invest in initiatives at the government level to change the the mindset and the attitudes of policymakers and mm. uh, really build their understanding of why this is an important way of working. It's not going to be effective in terms of putting young people in the room if the policymakers don't want them there, don't know how to engage with them, and then don't respond to their feedback at the end of the day. And so at the highest level, I think that that's one of the key priorities. On the other side, I'd suggest that the money is well spent in continuing to invest in initiatives for school-age students in building their civic participation skills, their leadership abilities and their communication skills as well, so that we're equipping the next generation with the attributes that are necessary to both contribute to policymakers as young people in youth-led initiatives, but also to continue that work as they become adults in society and can continue to engage in a space, in a manner that we are really looking for as a, a participatory democracy. Is there a socioeconomic aspect to the disengagement? You know, are the, are the better schools getting better resources and are their, their students more engaged? And is it, is it the lower socioeconomic schools that are struggling? There is some data that suggests that, but it's not a universal experience. So there are some um, schools in low socioeconomic areas that are doing phenomenal work on the basis mm. of the passion and commitment of their school staff and the, the nature of the school community as a whole. That said, we also have very privileged schools that have a lot more resources to invest in supporting student wellbeing alongside educational attainment. And often those students have greater um, access to resources outside of school, so in their family and their community life to help support their needs as well. So I think that there's an impact there and it really highlights the need for policymakers to consider equity when they're thinking about the way yeah. in which the money is being spent and young people are being supported. And what about the role of parents? I mean, if I look back, and I know we're talking about that old people don't have the answers, but the role of parents in, in helping kids stay engaged. That question comes up in our research all the time. Um, so we work quite closely with parents and carers, particularly in the education sector, whilst we're working alongside school staff and school leaders. And you can see a tension in the two perspectives there, where often individuals in the education sector uh, in particular will feel like schools are increasingly taking on the role of a parent or carer and filling more of that space. The other perspective, parents and carers are often um, much more time challenged. The economic mm. conditions mean that they have to work harder, they have to work longer, they're commuting further, which means that in order to provide a comfortable or even 
sufficient lifestyle for their their children, they don't have any option but to rely on schools in a new and different way. Mm. I think it speaks to the increasing complexity that we spoke about earlier, but also highlights the need for government intervention to consider the the challenges of those traditional structures and the change uh, that is being experienced over time and what that means for both schools and parents and young mm. people when we look to provide those supports. It's a it's certainly a complex area. What about the idea of lowering the voting age to 16? Well, there's quite active campaigns at the moment about it and there's uh, obviously perspectives on both sides, but the voice of the youth really says, you know, the policy decisions that are being made now are going to impact them most heavily into the future and so they have mm. a right to participate. I think that if we were to pursue that, it really goes back to the point around making sure that there's appropriate education in yeah, schools so that I young people so. can actively engage, can identify misinformation and are able to thus make informed choices about where our country should be going. Indeed. That's been great, Amy. Uh, thank, thank you for joining me today. I very much enjoyed that conversation. And thank you to all of you for joining us today. Tune in next time for another Insider Take on what's happening in the headlines or visit acelallen.com.au for more in-depth articles and insight.